I'm so glad you're joining us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you have. Our websites are Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. And Clark Deals, our team at Clark Deals is working so hard to make sure that you have the latest, greatest information on deals for practical items that you have to have right now. And I want to talk about something practical that is the kind of change we're seeing. Now, I know that air travel, having collapsed, has made a partial comeback, but it's still a tiny fraction of where it was before. And the airline people in their survey data know that the most important thing they have to do is create an environment in the airport, at the gate, and on the plane where people feel that they're not going to end up catching coronavirus from another passenger. So airlines have not quite in lockstep, but pretty much have implemented new policies that at some airlines go into effect. Well, actually with everybody, they are in effect now the phase one, which is almost universally with our full fare airlines, mid-price airlines, and low-cost airlines, that you have to wear a mask, and that is without an exception. And they say it very in a very interesting way, <laughs> but essentially, if you're not wearing a mask, you're not going to be on the airplane. And I need to explain the purpose of the mask because there's been a lot of confusion on people's parts and there have been circumstances with significant hostility when somebody gets to a retail store that says you can't enter without wearing a mask. So the purpose of the mask is not to prevent you getting coronavirus. It's to protect others that you might come into contact with from getting coronavirus that you have. And so, so many people are contagious but symptomless or very minor things that you don't know, hey, is that seasonal allergies? What's going on with me? So the purpose of the mask is to prevent what's known as community spread. Now, Frontier is going a step further than other airlines, and that's a 100% temperature check before you can board a Frontier flight. And the temperature they're using is the same one that's being used in factory environments and other workplaces where they're taking temperature, which is 100.4, that a temperature above 100.4 is consistent with where people's fevers will be if they have coronavirus. And that's why that's the temperature tipping point, that if you walk up and you have a degree of fever, you know, 99.6, 99.8, something in there. Nobody's really going to do anything about it, but you start going over one and a half degrees of fever and you're in a zone that they're worried you could uh, potentially be a carrier of coronavirus and that's why that's the temperature that would be fly or no fly, go to work, not go to work, that sort of thing. So uh, the other thing you're going to find is that if you do choose to travel, you're likely not even going to have access to water on the flight. 
You're going to need to bring your own water, your own snacks. Nothing typically will be served to you. And so you're the one who has to make sure you have what you need in order to be able to travel. And we are moving into a phase with states opening up, which is referred to as the disease management phase. And disease management's completely different than what we did at first with most of the nation states going into various versions of lockdown. Because in disease management, the idea is, you know, the six feet distance and um, the precautions you take if you go into a store and they'll have where you can only walk one way in an aisle, no doubling back and only allowing so many people in stores. All these steps are part of managing disease as we move forward where we don't have widespread testing and tracing and isolating in the United States and we don't have a known effective treatment yet and we're a good ways away from having a vaccine, we're going to find as we resume more and more facets of daily life that we're going to have more and more rules of the road, if you will, about what's required for us to re-engage with society outside of lockdowns. Uh, I want you to post questions for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel are alternating asking your questions for you. And Kim, you're up first. What you got? All right. Today, starting with Dar in Virginia, she says, Hi, Clark. I own a boutique studio slash gym in Virginia, and we're fortunate enough to have been awarded a PPP loan in this second round of funding. We pivoted our business to move our classes live and online and on demand since our physical studio closed in March. My question relates to new hires. Because we pivoted to an area of live streaming and video editing, an area that I had little expertise in, we had to hire new employees to help. Do these new hires count towards my PPP forgiveness? I do plan on keeping them on board as I see this new part of my business offering a lot to my studio. Yes, this is a great question and one that really has not been addressed by me and seldom anywhere else. But the scoop is you can rotate your staff. So you could have, let's say, pre-coronavirus, you could have 10 particular individuals. And then during coronavirus, you maintain 10 individuals, but they can be different people. It's all about trying to maintain levels of employment. As long as you do that, you have eligibility for forgiveness. And the rules on forgiveness... We're still waiting for the definitive regulations on how forgiveness is going to work. That's why the second round of the PPP money is not close to being used up because people are now afraid to get it because they're worried it will stick to them like glue and that they won't have the forgiveness later that they expected because the final regulations may not fit their circumstance. I want to tell you that you should go ahead and apply for and get approval for the loan because what's the worst that happens? You take out a loan, you put the money in a separate account, 
if the regulations turn out to be brutally terrible for you and not effective for your business, you pay back that money at an interest rate of 1%, very, very little interest, and you just say, wash your hands of the PPP, say it didn't work for me, here's your money back and the 1%. Um, on the other hand, the regulations will likely allow, even in very restrictive circumstances, some amount of forgiveness, like in the case we just talked about with the new hires. And so you want to have the advantage of being able to have what will turn from a loan to a grant, and the rest you would have to pay back, but at the extremely low 1% interest rate, and you're given two years to pay it back. Joel? Clark Diane says, I'm a landlord with two mortgages and a couple other homes. My income is Social Security and the rent from those rental homes. So what's the best way to handle the rent situation if my tenants are currently unable to pay? I cannot afford to go without rent over an extended period of time. So this is a terrible circumstance. And, you know, it's glossed over that a huge percent, maybe as much as nearly half, of rentals available in the country are small landlords, not big impersonal organizations. If your loans are, in fact, um, federally backed, which overwhelmingly they would be, you may have the ability to have forbearance through the period of time till your tenants are able to start paying rent again. Now, you will also have a tough choice as a landlord, because your tenants are going through a very hard time. Hopefully, many uh, tenants out there will have started receiving unemployment compensation and will be able to start paying rent again. But you will face a time where you'll have to make a decision if a tenant is not able for an extended period of time to pay rent. You may be faced with the unpleasant task of having to give them notice that you may have to move forward with an eviction. Because this is, this is a no-win scenario, coronavirus, for you as a landlord and your tenants. Because you can't go forever without rent, or you'll end up losing those rental properties and the rent income that you depend on for your life. Kim? This is from Brandon in Georgia. Brandon says, I'm a self-employed musician and I'm out of work due to the pandemic. I have just received my letter that I qualify for PUA and I've never been on unemployment before, never qualified before. So I have many questions for you. Uh Oh, let's hope I can answer them. I know. We'll try. Because they also vary across all 50 states. They do. They do. That's really important to note. Um, Every state labor department is handling things differently. So what he wants to know is that when he files weekly, if he ends up getting a gig, does he claim that? I'm just going to go through the three questions because they're all kind of related. So does he claim it if he gets a gig weekly or does that disqualify him? If he gets a gig one week and then not the next week, does that disqualify him? And then if he doesn't file for one week, does that mean he has to reapply all over again? So it's that question of part-time employment, basically. So usually with unemployment, there's in most states, there's not flexibility if you are receiving partial income. You go from receiving unemployment to not receiving it, 
as soon as you have income. But under the special coronavirus rules, you as someone who is on greatly reduced income, let's say you have a gig, then you don't, then you do, you remain eligible for unemployment. The amount you receive each week may go up or down based on the work you have or don't have. This is the craziest thing, though, and it's something that works against the purposes of creating more income and getting the economy going again. As a practical matter, it is better for you while you're receiving unemployment to not accept a gig that would only give you a tiny amount of income that would offset part of what you receive on unemployment. It would be best for you to wait till there's a decent amount of work for you before you did that. And this is one of the problems with how unemployment works is it's not designed for seesaw and it's hard for states to administer that. And you stand the risk, even though you're still entitled to a portion of unemployment, when you do take a gig, you face a risk that the state will turn it off instead of give you the partial amount of money. I mean, this is, this is where it gets to school of hard knocks and what decision you would choose to make. Joel? Clark Kelly in Oregon says, Our family bought Disneyland tickets through a third-party vendor before coronavirus. We plan to go at the end of June, and now that's obviously impossible. The third-party agency says the best they can do is refund, uh, do a re- give us a refund minus a 10% restocking fee, which is about $150. So do you think we can do better somehow if we keep pushing, or should we contact Disneyland directly? Wow. that So the tickets were $1,500 in tickets. Wow. Um, so I would contact Disney directly. And if you ever plan to go at a future date and Disney says you can use the value of those at a future date and you can afford to let the money tie up, that might be the best alternative. But if the third party ticket seller has a broker fee that you would lose, but you'd get back most of your money, 1350 out of 1500 you're not planning to go to Disney once the trip's lost, you might be best off unless Disney offers you a better alternative just taking your 1350. It's time for today's Clark Rave. It's where you hear something great going on in the world at a time that, well, we could all use some cheering up and some good news. So that's why instead of the Clark Rageous moment, where you'd usually hear about a company ripping you off or something like that, We're talking about acts of individuals or companies making a difference. Today, I want to talk about a company called Bimarco. Bimarco is an organization that takes uh, those used shipping containers that have basically no use once they've shipped goods from Asia to the United States, and they pile up rusting, takes them and turns them in to portable hospital ICU units. So with coronavirus, there's been a huge spike in certain parts of the country with coronavirus overwhelming the space available in a hospital. And this company has come up with a design where in short order, they can make a hospital ICU on wheels and do so in just days they can build these 
this is the kind of innovation we're going to have to see in this phase of disease management that sadly could go on a couple more years in the United States and around the world. And we're going to have to do a variety of things that are out-of-the-box thinking. And being able to put an ICU fully equipped and ready for power and everything a hospital would need on wheels and deliver it to a site and have it up and working in just days is phenomenal. And I'm so excited that this company, B. Marco, a small company, has been able to design, engineer, and build these and actually has them working around the country. That's great. A true Clark rave. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. And speaking of ripoffs, my goodness, we are hearing a huge number of complaints from people in our Team Clark Consumer Action Center who are people with federal student loans that as part of the Coronavirus Relief Acts that you don't make a payment on most federal student loans for six months. There's no interest charge. In fact, there's not even any attempt to bill you for these loans. You're completely considered to be current people in public service loan forgiveness. The six months count towards that forgiveness. So why, if something sounds so good, are we hearing one complaint after another, after another, after another, because the loan servicers have messed this up to the max. They're destroying people's credit by enlisting people as delinquent on their student loans when they're not even being billed for them right now and they're not even required to make any payment at all. Everyone is supposed to be considered to be current and these people are twiddling their thumbs ruining people's credit. There's a Reddit thread about this that has an unbelievable number of posts about people whose credit has been completely trashed even though the CARES Act is clear as could be. So what do you do? Well, first thing you do is if you can reach your student loan servicer, if you can reach them, you tell them they're reporting you as delinquent, which is not allowed under Section 3515D, D as in dog, of the CARES Act. You do that same thing in a dispute with Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. If you want to see if Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian show you as a student loan deadbeat with your federal student loans, you are allowed right now a free copy of each of your credit reports once a week for a year right now. A fantastic change over how things usually work where you're only allowed one free report from each bureau a year. So every week you have access. Go to annualcreditreport.com, even though right now it's weeklycreditreport.com. Go to annualcreditreport.com. Get a copy of each of your credit reports. Again, completely free. 
Don't fall for any of this stuff. Equifax, TransUnion, or Experian might try to sell you. Get those reports. See if you're being reported as current or not on those student loans. If you're being reported as delinquent, again, you need to contact your student loan servicer. Tell them they're in violation of Section 3515D of the CARES Act and that they need to correct their filings with the credit bureaus. Write down who you speak with when you speak to them. And again, you also, with the credit reports that you will receive, you will have the ability to dispute that false information on your reports. And you will have a simple procedure to do that with each of them. They're seeing a lot of these disputes. And you do those two things in tandem to get your reputation back because the hit to your credit score can be absolutely massive. Um, Producer Kim, you've been doing a lot of research on this. What did I not mention that I should have? I I think you nailed it all, and that's really great takeaway advice, is that if it's on there, you need to dispute it, especially if you're looking to buy something right now, right? Yeah, and, and all kinds of things can go wrong. If you have a home, your homeowner's insurance rates can skyrocket. If you have a vehicle with auto insurance, your vehicle insurance will skyrocket because of a declining credit score like this. So you've got to get on top of this right away. As if you needed one more thing to do. Right. (laughs) And Kim, you get to ask the next question that people have posted on Clark.com slash ask. True. And this is from Trisha in Oklahoma. She says, I heard you talk about studies showing positive results from employees that are able to work from home. Studies show that employees are actually more productive in certain situations. My company has forced us to work from home during the pandemic. And for the most part, it's gone great without any hiccups. Once things get back to normal, I plan to request to be allowed to continue this on a part time basis. I have found that it's a time saver and a money saver and in certain situations, a sanity saver, not having to deal with any office drama. What would be the best way to plead my case? Should I reference any studies particularly? So employers are going to be much more interested in people working from home than they've been in the past, where employers have been at best really... um, reluctant, skeptical. Uh, That's why there have been employers that are run by control freaks that have been spying on their employees working from home. That's why, I don't know if you've heard me say, cover up the camera on your laptop or desktop so that it's only open when you were doing a video call or video chat or anything like that. And know that employers may be doing Uh, key logger programs or anything like that if you're using a work computer at home don't do any personal stuff that might put you in a bad light on that computer but anyway employers now are much more motivated to have people continue to work from home in many cases because they've seen productivity be higher than it was before not just the same or worse and so you are a more productive employee And in addition, because of the rules employers are going to have to follow in office environments, if they bring everybody back, they're going to have to rent far more office space in order to have the spacing 
that we're going to have to have for the next couple of years. So employers are not going to want to spend all that money. And so you're saving your employer money if you continue to work from home. If your employer is a Neanderthal, though, and wants you back and insist on it, you'll have to go back. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know that there's a specific argument that you can make, but I think the psychology and culture of that has changed. There is one real downside to working exclusively from home, and that is if you were somebody hoping to climb the corporate ladder, you're not going to do that if you're not present and visible in person. Uh, people respond differently emotionally to people that are in their presence than to people that are working remotely. And you'll find that over your career, you'll advance less and make less money if you work exclusively remotely. Joel? Clark James in Minnesota says, what happens to airline frequent flyer miles if an airline files for Chapter 11? Should I go ahead and use them now while they're still active and available? If you feel safe getting on an airplane, use your points. Use them now because we don't know how many years it's going to be till air travel fully recovers, barring a miraculous discovery of an extremely effective vaccine. What I'm reading is that rec full recovery from the airline industry looks like it's 2023. So that's three years away. And there will be airlines that formerly were very successful that will not survive. A Chapter 11 filing alone doesn't mean your points go away. Usually in Chapter 11, airlines are able to reorganize. And one of the things they do is they make sure they get the court's approval to protect points. But that's only if an airline successfully reorganizes. If an airline shuts down and fails, your points fly away and it's over. So that's why if you are comfortable flying, use your points. Kim? Jay in Florida says, hello, sir. My question is, my mother and I are thinking about investing in purchasing season tickets for the Toronto Raptors. What do you think about owning a personal seat license in this environment? <laughs> well, let's, let's shorten that. What do I think about owning PSLs? I hate PSLs. I mean, I hate them. Um, if you know what's going on in Charlotte, with the Carolina Panthers Stadium, which I think is called Bank of America Stadium or something like that, the Panthers PSL holders were so mistreated by the team, it's off the charts. People, if you're not familiar with PSLs, a personal seat license is something you pay for typically for 20 years that only gives you the right to buy tickets. And if you stop buying the tickets, you forfeit the money you paid for the PSL. It's a racket. So in the case of Charlotte, what happened was they reconfigured the stadium and just told PSL holders when they reconfigured the stadium, yeah, you don't have that seat anymore. That great seat looking at the game, yeah, it's over. We're putting you in this crummy seat over here 
And by the way, if you read this clause in our PSL, you can't do anything about it. And that's the problem with PSLs. It is you supporting a billionaire owner in building an arena or a stadium. So forgetting coronavirus, you have to really, really love that sport and love adding another zero to the wealth of that billionaire and that's your choice but i think it's a stinking anti-consumer rotten thing for billionaires to be subsidized by ordinary fans you can't tell how i feel about psls can you joel Clark Jeff says, my wife and I have set up a dependent care FSA for the year with the max amount to apply towards daycare. However, with daycares closed and our state indicating daycares aren't going to reopen till the last phase of reopening, it'll be a significant time before uh, we can reimburse the expense. We're concerned that we may lose close to $5,000 as the funds cannot be recovered unless uh, they're used for a qualified reimbursement. So do we have any other recourse? First thing you should do Find out who your member of the Congress is, your congressman, and you contact his or her constituent service office, talk about the problem, and this is something Congress needs to address with the next piece or the one after of coronavirus legislation that will allow money to carry forward because of the unusual circumstances of coronavirus that dependent care allowance be allowed to be carried forward into 2021. Now, it is possible that your employer will allow you under something that already happened with coronavirus legislation, will allow you to discontinue contributing to your dependent care allowance FSA. Normally, once you've set the amount, it's irrevocable. It remains the same. But the coronavirus circumstance is so unusual that I can't say most employers, but many employers are allowing you to at least discontinue putting funds in there for the remainder of 2020. The ultimate remedy, though, has to come from the U.S. House and Senate. In addition to contacting your member of the House, call the constituent offices of your two U.S. Senators and state the same request, they look, and if something like that comes up again and again, then it's more likely to be something that they pay attention to and do something about. Kim? Larry in Georgia says, you mentioned the other day to consider maxing out your HELOC in order to, in order to prevent the bank from reducing the line of credit. You also said it's worth considering moving that money after you take it out so that the bank doesn't try to take it back. I checked with the bank that I'm currently with, and they say that's not possible. Can you please clarify? Uh, well, I don't know what question you asked the bank, but here's the deal. When you draw down your HELOC, let's say you have $50,000 available in it, and you, you draw down that fifty, you can do whatever you want with that fifty. So you just take that money and you put it in an online savings account at one of the online banks or put it at a credit union, just anywhere other than the institution it's at. The reason I say this is back during the banking scandals of seven, eight, and nine, banks were, were 
going after people who had drawn down their home equity lines of credit. And if the money was in the bank, they were using what's known as a cross-collateralized clause to grab that money with no notice to you, pay down the line, and close your line. And so that's why you need to deposit the money outside of that financial institution so you're not subject to a bank acting in that absolutely despicable and unacceptable way. When you have a question for me, post it at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternating asking your questions. Joel, who do you have a question from? Clark, there's one from Jackie in Florida. She says, I see there's a waiver on taking my 2020 RMD. So does that mean I'll have to double up on it next year? No. And for people who don't know what we're talking about when I get an RMD question, there's a procedure required under federal law that used to start at age 70 and a half, now starts at age 72, that money that you'd saved over your lifetime in retirement accounts must be withdrawn based on your remaining expected lifespan starting at either 70 and a half or now age 72. So there's a special coronavirus exception to that, that this year you don't have to make your RMD. If you get your RMD monthly and you don't want to get it the rest of this year, you just contact your provider who is paying the money out to you, whatever mutual fund or broker or whatever, and you say, I want to discontinue my RMD for the remainder of 2020. You do not have to double take it in 2021. This is a one-time deal that you're able, if you don't need the money to live on, you can just leave it in your retirement accounts and take 2020 off, resuming as things stand now in 2021. Kim? Steve in Ohio says, I'm in the market for buying a used car, but I'm not in a really big hurry. When do you think car prices will completely bottom out? I want you in a big hurry because based on the trends I'm seeing, you've got really through about the 4th of July where the inventory overhang of used cars will be at its highest with the best deals. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.